Well, it's that same God who has left us with his word that we might be instructed and guided and helped through our Christian walk and life. So let's turn again to Matthew chapter 12 from verse 33. Now I know that the, the passage that we looked at last week, I know quite a few of you found that passage particularly instructive and penetrating. These encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees, they're very enlightening, aren't they? Very instructive for us. So much of what it means to be self-centered, self-promoting, self-satisfied, self-reliant, self-assured, much of that is all wrapped up in these Pharisees. That same sinful nature, of course, is in each of us. It perhaps manifests itself differently in us today in that we are not wrapped up in religion the way they were, but nevertheless, these pride-based attitudes which contributes to their self-delusion, uh, we know uh, this is us as well, through and through, unless God will change us by His grace. And the very direct truth which Jesus puts to them, it leaves us in absolutely no doubt as to where we stand before Him. And as Jesus continues this uh, discussion with the Pharisees, there's more of the same for us this morning um, for some of you, it might be a bit of a bumpy ride. Fasten your seatbelt because these, these penetrating truths which are brought out in these exchanges between Jesus and the Pharisees are so relevant for each one of us. Jesus continues to debunk the accusations that they're bringing against him. And he's constantly affirming both his identity and he's also affirming the very perfect nature of his own character. We realise also he's, he's stating principles which one way or another hold true for you and hold true for me. It, nothing's changed here. And in verse 33, uh, we have the, the first of three points that I want to make this morning from these verses. And here is the first one. Whether good or bad, the fruit will always match the tree. You can get these little apps on your phone now. And uh, if you want to know what a certain tree is, you can just take a photograph of the leaf and it will instantly tell you what the tree is. Because that tree always produces that kind of leaf. And a good tree always produces good fruit, and a bad tree always produces bad fruit. Whether good or bad, the fruit will always match the tree. Now, of course, this isn't a new idea or illustration. Jesus spoke like this back in chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes 
do men gather figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. This is Jesus saying these things. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. In the next chapter after this one, chapter 13, will be the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils might actually be a better title. He speaks there of the seed in the good soil bearing fruit. In his famous teaching about the vine and the branches in John chapter 15, Jesus speaks of the branches which bear no fruit being removed. So these illustrations are used frequently by Jesus. The Apostle Paul picks up the same kind of illustration in his letters. He speaks of believers bearing fruit to holiness and bearing fruit to God. He mentions that in Romans. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit in your life in Galatians chapter 5. In Philippians 1 verse 11, he talks about being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.10, walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The imagery is clear. The message behind the image is clear. All of the things that are being seen and heard in Christ's life and ministry, this can only be described as good fruit and It's perfectly and consistently good fruit. How can fruit so good possibly come from a tree that's bad? And Jesus says, either make the tree and its fruit good or make the tree and its fruit good. Bad. Now, this word make, as we have it in our New King James Version in verse 33, what does this mean? Make the tree and its fruit, good or bad? Is this an instruction to the Pharisees? Is this a challenge being given to the Pharisees? Is this making something they must do? Is this making something they are being told to produce? No, not at all. It's using the word make in a different way. If I showed you something and asked you, what do you make of this? What would I mean? Not what could you make with this. What do you make of this? I would mean, what do you think about this? What's your consideration of this? What's your view on this? What do you make of this? This is the sense in which the word make is being used here. You must either decide or conclude or consider that this is good fruit from a good tree or you must conclude that this is bad fruit from a bad tree. What it cannot be is good fruit from a bad tree. It cannot be that. That option is not on the table. 
It can only be one or the other. Come on, Jesus is saying. Decide. Speak up. Which is it? Now, you must decide exactly the same. The Lord Jesus cannot be bad fruit from a good tree. He cannot be good fruit from a bad tree. He either is all and everything that he claims to be, or he is not all any of that. You need to decide about Christ. This question that Jesus puts to the Pharisees comes to every single one of us this morning. You must decide for yourself about this Jesus. Who is he? What is he? What do you make of him? The Stanley Park Baptist, where Keith was preaching last week, still have emblazoned on the front of their building, what think ye of Christ? That's the question. And if he is a good tree producing good fruit, what reason will you give for ignoring him? This is the question being put to the Pharisees by Jesus. It's exam season in schools and universities. But never has there been a question like this one. None of those students will face a question like this one. Some students have just sat their finals, haven't they, Jamie? They will never face a more important question than this one. What do you make of Jesus Christ? Who do you say he is? What will you decide today? And you must also remember that when it comes to the illustration of trees and their fruit, God's view of good fruit and bad fruit is rather more acute and precise than yours and mine. We like to label lots of things as good, including, of course, myself. But do you remember that Jesus said once, there is only one who is good, and that is God? God's definition of good is very different to yours and mine. Goodness, in God's eyes, is the complete absence of any evil or wickedness. Only that which is totally holy and righteous is good in God's eyes. No other form of goodness will do. Now it is true, of course, by God's grace, even sinners are capable of acts of kindness and charity and mercy up to a point. But nothing at a level that qualifies as good in God's eyes. Because the Bible says the very best of our good deeds are like filthy rags before God because they will always be tainted with our sinfulness. Always. There can even be 
really bad motives behind the good things that we're apparently doing. There can be a lot of self-serving in the good things that we're doing to others because of what we hope it will pay us back in the future and so on. And we're very inconsistent in our good deeds. And alongside all the good that we might find we're able to do in our own estimation, there can be all manner of pride and envy and spite and bitterness and malice and unforgiveness all lurking under the surface. And you can manage to keep most of that hidden, perhaps, but it's there. And you might hide it from me, and you might hide it from even your best friend or your family members, but God knows all about what's lurking within your heart. And actually, this verse tells you, you don't hide it as well as you think you do. Even other people are able to distinguish between good and bad fruit. This explains also, doesn't it, why there is so much going on in the world which goes against the things of God. There are lots of bad trees out there, and some of them produce a lot of particularly bad fruit. And the reason why so many go along with it, even if they don't do those things themselves, is because they are also bad trees. In our sin, we are all bad trees producing bad fruit. Now, you might be, you might be right, rightly horrified at some of the things that you see going on in the world. You might be filled with great sorrow by some of the things that you see going on in the world. But you should not be surprised by the things you see going on in the world. Bad trees producing bad fruit. God sent Jesus into the world that through him we might be transformed into good trees, that he might start to produce good fruit in us. That's why Christ came. That's why we all need Christ. That's why we can't do anything outside of Christ. For those of us who now know and love him, we are told now we are to give ourselves to those good works which God has prepared for us. That's Ephesians chapter 2. This is much of what we're considering on Sunday evenings at the point that we're in in Romans, in the, the five final chapters of that letter. The, the outworking of our faith. That we would be known as godly followers of Christ because of the fruit which now can be seen in our lives. That it is unmistakably Christian and Christ-like. What kind of tree are you? What does the fruit in your life say that you are? The second lesson that we learn which is still absolutely relevant for us today, is found in verses 34 and 35. The heart is the root, and so often the mouth is the fruit. The heart is the root. The mouth is the fruit. There's a, a pastor over in America, a guy called Ligon Duncan. Uh, I don't think you'll find that name anywhere else. Ligon Duncan, he says this, 
There is nothing to show us that we have need of grace like the use of our mouths. There's nothing to show us our need of grace like the use of our mouths. Now in Jesus' day, the people thought the Pharisees were very religious men and must therefore be morally upright. Jesus will say that the words coming from the mouths of the Pharisees prove them otherwise. Their words reveal to you the true nature of their heart. They may look the way you think godly men ought to look, but the way they speak, and particularly the way they speak about Jesus, reveals something in their heart which is absolutely wrong. Though they look good, they are in fact evil, and Jesus says the number one thing that betrays them is what's coming out of their mouth. They don't know God. They don't know God's grace. They've not been brought into a saving fellowship with God. They've completely missed all of the imagery in the Old Testament which pictures atoning sacrifice for sin. They've not been brought into a saving relationship with God as their Father, and they show it in the way that they speak about the Son. The Son is the great revelation of God the Father to the whole world, and they are totally blind to the whole thing, and they're just bad-mouthing Him in the worst way possible. They show that they are opposed to the grace of God, and their slanderous speech against Christ is the key by which they reveal their sinful hearts. They've worked so hard in so many areas of their lives to look good, but then their mouths let them down, their mouths betray them. Now, there's much, much else about their lives that betray them as well, but the most significant way in which they betray themselves is the things coming out of their mouth. And there's a very sobering and significant lesson for all of us here, whoever we are, Christian or non-Christian. For those of us who are believers, much of your witness will be non-verbal. It will be seen in your behavior and it will be displayed in, in your attitudes and in your actions. In some ways, a Christian witness at times will actually be slow to speak for fear of not speaking as we ought to speak. But when you do speak, when a Christian speaks, when a Christian speaks, ought not their words to be dripping with the grace and truth of Christ? Ought that not to be the case? The Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, uh, he wrote this. Where grace is the reigning principle in the heart, the language will be the language of Canaan. Men's language reveals what country they're from. Is your language the language of Canaan? Does the language of heaven fill your conversation? Or does your conversation show something else? Uh, we've got quite a few nationalities represented in our congregation every Sunday morning. And 
if someone new came in and got speaking to all of us, there are quite a few people and it would be immediately obvious, oh, this is someone who's not from the UK now. Where's this person from? And most would make a fairly good guess as to where they're from. Uh, some of the European accents, uh, do, I, do I know the difference between a Polish and a Romanian accent? I don't know, but I'll have a good guess. I certainly know they're not from the UK. A Welsh accent, that's a little bit easier. An American accent, oh, I've got that one. Yeah. Chinese, Hong Kong, Malaysian, not sure, but I'm, I'm, in, the right, I'm in the right area. Our speech gives us away, tells us which country we're from. As believers, our speech should give us away, should let people know what country we're from, whose kingdom we belong to now. Now, even unbelievers are capable of kind and gracious acts, but the unconverted uh, will most obviously and readily reveal their true nature by, by the words they say, and especially the things they say about Christ and the gospel. Now, as, as Christians, therefore, we, we need to be very careful that our religiosity, our our claim to be religious people isn't betrayed by the fact that we've actually never learned to tame our tongues. Mouths which are quick to gossip about other people's business on the pretense of being concerned about them. Mouths that are quick to criticise others. Mouths which are quick to speak quite disparagingly about what you consider to be everyone else's shortcomings quick to tut tut and dear oh dear other people mouths perhaps which are quick to lose their temper mouths which are far too ready to snap back at people because actually that that is what's going on in your heart and your mouth betrays you and it's important to remember, isn't it, hurtful, critical, stinging words. They are the words which lodge in people's minds. They are the words not easily forgotten. They are the words once said, which can never be taken back. Let's not be Christian people who, despite all of our various outward displays of faithfulness, reveal a heart which is not as it should be because of the words that are coming out of our mouths. Uh, one preacher said, even those who are churchgoers, even those who are leaders in the community of believing people can deceive themselves about their own heart and usually it will be the mouth that gives them away. The heart is the root the mouth is the fruit. Now, of course, it's not that learning to speak a certain way makes you righteous. That's not what's being said here. Of course not. What's being said is that your speech will be a reflection of what's going on in your heart. 
Jesus goes on in verse 35 to say that our hearts are like storehouses of good and evil. A person's heart is like a warehouse. And you can only bring out of a warehouse those things which are already stored there. There ought to be things in the Christian's heart now. And when you take a look, there's a sign across the heart and it says this, out of stock. Out of stock. That kind of thought has gone and is to be found no more. That kind of attitude is gone and will not be found in this heart anymore. And when Satan comes and tries to stir that up within you, he finds he's confronted with a sign out of stock. Doesn't belong here anymore. Isn't to be found here anymore. Because this is a heart that has been and is being and will continue to be totally transformed by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. A person's heart is like a warehouse. What's coming out of yours and what's coming out of mine? And there's nothing so hard to control as the tongue. If there's one part of the body which at times seems to have a mind of its own, it's the tongue. Well, as some of you know, well does James in his letter warn us of the very great care that we need to give to our speech. The great, great damage that something so small can do. But more than that, it actually reveals the true state of the heart, says Jesus. A transformed and sanctified tongue is the fruit of a transformed and sanctified heart. And only the Holy Spirit can do that within you as you turn in repentance and faith to Christ. Uh, a preacher called uh, J. Sidlow Baxter, they don't make names like they used to, do they? J. Sidlow Baxter, he said this, listen, one of the first things that happens when a man is really filled with the Holy Spirit, or a woman of course, is not that he speaks in tongues. It's that he learns to hold the one that he already has. He's right, isn't he? He's right. Our tongues evidence the work of the Spirit in our hearts, or the lack of it. Jesus' life his words, his speech, they reveal his heart, don't they? They show us a man who is humble, a man who is caring, a man who is compassionate, a man who is constant, a man who is consistent in his loving and in his consideration of others. Everything about him, everything about Christ is consistent with who he is. As we see Jesus reflect who he is by his words and by his actions, 
so also we are being called by God's grace to reflect the transformed hearts that he has given us as those who are the redeemed of Christ. And so that through our speech and through our actions towards one another, these things may be seen and felt to his glory and to his praise. And then thirdly, in verses 36 to 37, know this, your words will expose you at the last judgment. Your words will expose you at the last judgment. Here, Jesus says very solemnly that your words will either condemn you or they will acquit you. Every idle word men speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. By your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus stresses that even careless words, even idle words, words that we didn't pause to think about before we said them, even those words will have to be answered for at the last judgment. And for those of us who are Christians, that kind of carelessness ought not to be found in the heart of a believer. All of our words should always be measured. The words just, well, they just come gushing out of us sometimes, don't they? And yet, Jesus is saying that they will be a very real indicator, now and on the last day. And that shortly, we will have to give an account for our words. The general constant tone of our speech will be evidence either for us or against us on the last day. And this reminds us just how much we need the grace of God. There's nothing like our tongues to remind us that it's impossible for any of us to walk perfectly before God unless he visit us by his grace. There is nothing like the tongue that shows that you need the grace of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ so that your speech can become edifying and not destructive so that it will reflect a transformed heart. As we see things in Christ as also in us by his spirit through his word. Now, one thing that's important to clarify, Jesus says, by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. Now, of course, he's not for one minute suggesting that you have it within yourself to choose your own fate on the day of judgment. He's not suggesting that if you can teach yourself to temper your tongue, if you can do that to a sufficient degree, you can save yourself and justify yourself. Of course, that's not what he's saying. For one thing, you would never achieve it. But what he's saying is that your words will prove to be a reliable indicator of your true spiritual state. If you are an unbeliever and unconverted, your words will be evidence of that. If you are a Christian, and if you are justified in Christ, and if you are under grace, and if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
your words will evidence that. If you've been a fake Christian, your words will evidence that. Your words confirm the nature of your heart. That's the issue here. J.C. Ryle said, our words are the evidence of the state of our hearts, as surely as the taste of the water is an evidence of the state of the spring it comes from. None of us can change our nature. Only God can do that. There is only one who can make you fit for heaven, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And once he has, nothing can stay the same, not even your tongue, especially not your tongue, so that as grace and righteousness is seen and heard in him, it will increasingly be seen and heard in you, because he's in you. as many have and as many do, I find some of the the really pithy little straight-to-the-point comments that J.C. Ryle makes on the Gospels to be so very, very helpful. And let me just wrap all of this up this morning uh, by just quoting a few of his own personal thoughts and reflections on these very verses. It's made all the more poignant, quoting Ryle, who, if you don't know, was the first bishop of Liverpool just over a hundred years ago. Uh, All the more poignant quoting these words as we drove past the parish church of Liverpool this morning with all of its uh, LGBT stuff proudly being waved around all over the place. Oh, for another bishop in Liverpool like J.C. Ryle. Would you another bishop soon? Well, I don't know if there is even a J.C. Ryle out there, but we could pray for one, couldn't we? Here's what he said. There are few of our Lord's sayings which are so heart-searching as this. There is nothing, perhaps to which most men pay less attention than their words. They go through their daily work, speaking and talking, without thought or reflection, and seem to imagine that if they do what is right, it matters but little what they say. But is it so? Are our words so utterly trifling and unimportant We dare not say so. Our words are the evidence of the state of our hearts. As surely as the taste of the water gives evidence of the spring it came from, the lips only utter what the mind conceives. If there were no other text in the Bible... This passage ought to convince us that we are all guilty before God and we need a righteousness better than our own, even the righteousness of Christ. How many idle, foolish, vain, 
light, frivolous, sinful, unprofitable things have we all said? How many words have we used which, like thistledown, have flown far and wide and sown mischief in the hearts of others that will never die? How often have we met our friends and the words we've spoken leave us in need of repentance? Let us resolve by God's grace to be more careful over our tongues and more particular about our use of them. Well, may it indeed be so to his glory and to his praise. And may each of us this morning know in our own hearts and be decided in our own hearts what is good fruit and what is a good tree and to see and to know that in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone we will find the goodness and the righteousness that we so desperately, desperately need.